Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 2 Kings 18. And we're going back to the 8th century B.C. I uh, was just been blessed to look at that new creation class that we've been running. for. We're going to be running for seven consecutive Wednesdays before service. And uh, Pastor Paul was just teaching about God's Word and how it's relevant. And it doesn't matter what society. It doesn't matter if it was Jesus and Roman society or going further back or in uh, Israel Uh, under domination of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians after that. God's truths are timeless. So whatever society, that's why it's called the living word. You know, some books you read, they're maybe written 100, 200 years old, and you read it and you, it's interesting, but there's really no relevance to it. The Bible is the living word. So as we go back, we're going to actually look at a man, King Hezekiah of the southern kingdom of Judah, who was a work in progress. He took the throne at roughly 25 years old, and uh, he had a lot of pride, he had a lot of problems, but the Bible speaks of him. You know, it's so cool how God looked at his life as a whole. You know, he, he grew, he matured, and he became one of the best and godliest kings of the southern kingdom. So we're going to look at his life, we're going to make a comparison to the northern kingdom that was kind of going apostate at the time, and we'll look at uh, six parts, comparing and contrasting. So starting with verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, began to reign. The kingdom is split. God's people are split, unfortunately. So you have kings in the north and kings in the south. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. Now, these were pagan places that the people were using in their false worship. So he removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan, or the bronze thing. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, Hezekiah. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, the wicked king of the Assyrian Empire, right? All historical fact and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So the first part is the spiritual evaluation of King Hezekiah. If we could put up the list of kings of Israel, okay, on the left-hand side, and Judah, southern kingdom, on the right-hand side, uh, we see that Hezekiah his dad was a pretty rotten person. <laughs> he was a really evil person, Ahaz, but the apple actually did far fall from the tree in Hezekiah's reign. And you'll see that there were several kings under him uh, before that kingdom ended. But over here, there's a parallel. Hoshea is ruling the north while Hezekiah is in the south. 
But because of the wickedness of the northern kingdom, God kind of cut that off. He stopped defending them. He stopped protecting them. And uh, the Assyrians, we know the rest of the story there. Uh, but, you know, Hezekiah was, you know, you, you see some of these kings, they, they did good, but they weren't thorough. Hezekiah was thorough, which tells me that he had a good walk with the Lord. But as we'll see, what I love about the Bible, it doesn't take any man or woman and say that they were perfect because we're all sinners. But it, it shows a profile of somebody who is good, a, a good character, and it shows their flaws too, which I like. You know what I'm saying? There's hope for us. Um, so this is interesting in verse 4. There was this... Okay, in Numbers 21, the, the Israelites... This goes way back to the time of Moses. There's a reference here. And Moses, um, you know, he's leading the children of Israel. And uh, there's some really bad things that are going on. And some serpents are biting the Israelites. So they, they call out, they repent, they call out to God... And Moses is looking to God for an answer. And what he does is he says to make a a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up. And if the people look at that, you know, it's a bronze thing, but it's fashioned of a serpent. And they believe that this could heal them. You know, God sent this, that they would be healed. And it came to pass that that was the case. So I'm going to read Numbers 21, just two verses It kind of gives you the information a little better there. It says that the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You know, if you look for the... (laughs) I actually did some research on this. Um... The, the image of, of what people thought it would look like has changed over the years, but the picture of healing, like in the medical industry, it's that pole with the serpent kind of spun around it. You know, a lot of the things that we think about, phraseology, symbols, comes from the Scripture. So that this was a, a picture of healing, to look at this that God had set up, and the people were healed. This is amazing how Jesus takes this in the New Testament, in John chapter 3, He speaks about that the only way to be saved is to believe in Him, that He died for our sins. But He, when He's trying to explain this to this religious leader, religious leader's not getting it. And He said, just like when Moses lifted up the fiery serpent and the people looked at it and they believed, they were healed. He goes, so must the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, be lifted up on the cross. And when people look to that sacrifice, they'll be healed from their sins. Thus, gaining entrance into heaven because our sin is what keeps us from from heaven. So a lot of things, very deep. There's a lot of layers, but here's the problem. Even the believers messed up back then. And what they did was somebody saves this serpent. Everybody gets healed. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, Moses drops it because everybody's good. And some people decide to pick it up and they kind of cherish it. And over really centuries they kind of idolized this serpent, which would kind of completely miss the point. It was a representation. However, today, the same thing happens. You know, you read about um, people go to Jerusalem, and there's always somebody over there peddling a piece of the cross that Jesus died on. You know, and people 
spend money on this, but so many pieces of wood have been sold o- over the years that the cross must have been up to heaven, you know. I'm being facetious. They're snake oil salesmen, you know. They're, oh, this is definitely the piece that, you know, and people will buy it. The same thing with, uh, you know, a cloth or the Shroud of Turin. It's venerated or, um, or statues uh, of, of, of Jesus or saints that people bow down to. Remember, it's a, it's a representation. And even the, there's some uh, weird manifestations of paintings that, that weep. People bow down and they kind of worship those paintings. God said specifically in the second commandment to not make any graven Im- images. He said specifically of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth, or, and then pe- people will bow down and worship it. God said, I strictly, this is right in the Ten Commandments. So this is if something, things that irk God, I would say that, listen, it's right there in number two. Um, but we have to be careful because we, as people, we have five senses. We want to, sometimes we want to sense, you know, we want to be sentient, you know, we want to feel God. And then what believers do, and again, it's, it's error, is they try to take a representation and say, well, this is tangible. I could see it. I could touch it. And it's a problem. What did Hezekiah do? He took that bronze serpent that people were worshiping and he busted it. He broke it in pieces and he got rid of it because it was idolatry. Again, but you know, you see that today. Nehushtan means a bronze thing. Uh, what is that? It's some bronze snake. Well, why has that thing been around here for so long? And why are people bowing down to it? So Hezekiah breaks it, which is great. Um, People can take anything that could be good and turn it into evil when they kind of move away from God and move towards the object. That's a problem. So Ahaz, though, as I said when we looked at the list of the kings, was a horrible king and a horrible man, but his son Hezekiah, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This one fall fall very uh, far from the tree. And, And I've heard people say this, you know, my family this, or it's almost like, you know, my family's into this, and, and I've heard people tell me their family's into criminal activity and all this kind of stuff, and they almost kind of get worried, but when you look at the Scripture, we all stand and fall for ourselves. I was the first one in my family that got saved, uh, and then it started to kind of spread because I wasn't, it was kind of cool, you know, I took them to church too, and they were hearing the Word, and uh, not everybody got saved, but, you know, uh, but I also wasn't a good person when I was younger. You know, God at some point got a hold of my life. Um, I'm praying that my son, I only got one kid, that he stays where I'm going, you know, that, he, that he's better than me, that he's really a good person, um, that he loves the Lord. But free will says that we could choose good or we could choose evil, regardless of who we came from. And it couldn't have been any further between Ahaz and Hezekiah. Verse 5, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Well, that's, that's very important. And verse 7, it says that uh, Hezekiah, the Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. Uh, and he rebelled against Assyria. Now, he does this twice. And we're going to talk about the first rebellion and the second rebellion. But Hosea, right? You saw the parallel that I had put up. Hosea of the northern kingdom also tried to rebel against the dominant nation at the time, and he failed miserably. Why? Because... Hosea was, well, he had just come in when, the, when Israel was, was kind of counting on the Syrian nation against the Assyrians. Uh, and then when uh, Assyria dominated Syria, Israel was like, uh-oh. So then they try to trust in the Egyptians. All Hosea had to do was repent and turn to God. 
um, but he wouldn't do it, and the people wouldn't do it. There's actually, um, Hezekiah makes this great Passover, and he makes this great feast, and he's trying to reach out to the northern kingdom. His, you know, they're, they're related. Hey, come celebrate the Passover, and they kind of, they mock him and stuff like that. The northern kingdom was really wicked, and, um, and they, they suffered for it. But Hezekiah keeps going, and his, his king's after him, which is pretty good. Um, Jerusalem might have been the only city in that time that wasn't conquered by the Assyrians. And again, I, I love to play with history. I, I go into a lot of secular history. And they, every city, they, they knocked out except for Jerusalem. And that tells you something. It's very important to trust the Lord. Verse 9, we continue. It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, which is the capital city in the northern, you know, in Israel, and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, you see these parallels, Samaria was taken. Samaria falls to the Assyrians. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria. He expatriates them and put them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. We come, we come to the Medes later in history when they, they join up with the Babylonians, and then when the Babylonians start losing, they join up with the, uh, with the Persians, right? So the Medes were kind of, they, they, they were shifty people. You know, they would, they'd go with whoever's, whoever's winning at the time. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded and they would neither hear nor do them. So the second out of six is, um, we know why Israel fell, because of her great wickedness, and God was not going to continue to protect her anymore. He had made a deal with the nation, and they continued to violate um, just some awful things, practices with their kids, um, just some horrible things. So eventually he just removed his protective hand from them, and they were overrun by Assyria. Now this, if you're, if you're Hezekiah and you're in the south and you got scouts, in, in, in any war, in any, um, you know, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, um, the Russian Empire, the Third Reich, when you see s- these people just start to take over, take over, take over, if you're smart, you send scouts out and you want to see what's going on. Are they going to come for us next? So uh, Hezekiah is in the south and he sees what's going on in the north, and it's not a pretty picture. So, you know, he's concerned, you know, but he sends his people out to look at it. And probably it was a good object lesson, too. You know, I like when, when I can read the Bible and I, I learn about Samson. I mean, this guy just kept violating and violating, and, and he ends up, what, a slave at the end of his life, and they take his eyes out. It was a horrible thing. But he, he did all these things to put himself in that position. So hopefully we, as we read the Bible, we read what happens to someone when they do these types of things, and it's an object lesson to us. Well, I don't want to be like that. Well, I don't want to end up in that situation. So it's really a blessing to us. You see what I'm saying? It's an object lesson. Continue on, verse 13. It says, And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria. So, wait a minute, I thought it was Shalmaneser. You have to remember, um, you had uh, Tiglath-Pelesar, you had Shalmaneser, you had Sargon, you had Sennacherib, then you had Esarhaddon, and we've been covering that. And, and uh, go, to, go to your secular sources, you'll see the list of those kings. So what happens is, 
each one of these kings, one dies, the sun takes over, he rises up. Is he going to be nice? Is he not? With the Assyrians, usually they weren't nice. So Sennacherib rises up. He came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So now he crosses the line, that line of demarcation between the north and the south. Assyria wipes, wipes out the northern kingdom. Now he's coming south. And he starts to take these cities. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lashish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. It's a little tough in the Hebrew. He's basically saying, I give, uncle. Uh, whatever I did, I apologize. You know, I'll give you money. Just please leave us alone. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, which in today's standards which would be over $100 million. So Hezekiah, remember back then, like today we have paper money, which is really not worth anything, but it's based on, you know, hopefully the government is solvent and stuff like that. We actually went out of the gold standard um, uh, decades ago, but they, they did a lot of mining and they did a lot of, you know, they built wealth, wealth by accumulating really gold and silver back then. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord or the temple and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So three out of six is, here is the first invasion of Judah by Assyria. And it's shocking, but encouraging at the same time. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's shocking because we're, we're, you know, the Bible says that Hezekiah is a good man. But he had his moments, like you and I. right? We have our moments too. Uh, he seems to panic. From a worldly perspective, at this point in time, nobody has ever beat the Assyrians. So if you want to rebel against them, rebel at your own risk. And what happened was when a, a new king came to, to power, sometimes the, and this happens today, you know, people have done this with mighty nations for, for centuries, millennia. Um, what the vassal states, or so in other words, the southern kingdom uh, under Ahaz, the wicked guy, the old king, um, agreed with Assyria, well, don't invade us, we'll pay you tribute money every year. So what happened is, over time, when a new king came into play, some of the vassal states would go, well, I'm not going to pay them, let's see what happens. Hezekiah was one of those people. He didn't pay them. And um, it, it was, well, then he started invading. So he realized, well, this is a problem. And again, from a worldly perspective, no one's ever beat the Assyrians at this point in history. Um, but he, what did he do? He panicked, fear. Um, and unfortunately, he went into God's house and he started stripping some of the gold and the precious metals. <laughs> Just give it to him, you know, take it. Please don't invade us. So you could see that even somebody, the, the Bible says was a good person, um, had their flaws. They succumbed to fear. We've succumbed to fear, I'm sure, and done foolish things, right? We're human, just like he was. Um, but what's encouraging, again, is that, is that we get to see some of his flaws. Again, not to be mean or anything, but to, to, you know, to show that there's hope for us. I mean, when you see Jesus and the disciples, my goodness, those guys were either <laughs> arguing with each other or, or thumping their chest or with Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Um, and it's, it's a blessing because I don't think I'd ever get into ministry if everything, everyone I read about in the Bible was perfect. I'd be like, 
there's no room for me in ministry. But I'm like, well, they had flaws just like I do. So, but, you know, but the point is that they love God and they try to do their best. Um, now, there's another, there's a conjecture here. Here's a conjecture that Hezekiah, I'm sure he was afraid and did some things out of fear, but Hezekiah might have thought, think about this one, it's, you know, people, Bible scholars kind of kick these things around, that uh, Hezekiah saw the wickedness of his own father, the king, and how he brought the southern nation into decadency, even though Hezekiah tried to turn that around. Hezekiah might have thought that his father's actions and some of the general state of the nation, that it wasn't God's will that they be delivered. That's actually pretty good conjecture, that he thought, I I just got to do whatever I have to do. I don't know if God is in this. However, later on, he goes to the prophet Isaiah, and they have some discussions, and uh, Isaiah says to him, God says, tighten up Jerusalem, because Hezekiah, the Assyrians are not going to get in. God's going to defend you. He's going to protect you. But there might have been a point in Hezekiah's life where he had no clear direction from the Lord. Um, Actually, there was a book, (laughs) there was actually apparently, when I put it in the search engine, there were many books that were written with the title, When God is Silent. You know, as Christians, we want to seek the Lord's will. We do pray. We read the Word of God. We, you know, He shows us things in the, in the course and the path of our lives. But if we've been a Christian long enough, there's times where we, where we feel or we sense that He's silent, maybe in a particular decision, maybe in a particular time in our life. And I tell you, when I put that in the search engine, it exploded. Because we, we deal with that sometimes as believers. And maybe Hezekiah dealt with that. And I can tell you, I've dealt with that. And that's not a, a, a comfortable place to be. But if that does happen, God has a reason for it. You know what I'm saying? There's a purpose in all that. It could be to develop patience. It could be because we're being disobedient. It could be because it's not time yet for him to give us an answer. And hindsight is always great because you look back and you're like, oh, that's what God was doing in my life. But boy, when you're going through it, it's not really that much fun. The good news is Hezekiah gets a second chance at the Assyrians to do the right thing. So, in essence, you pay off the Assyrians, they go away for a while, they go bother somebody else. They just were bullies. And then eventually they came back to bother the southern kingdom again. So there was a second time he had to deal with these guys. Now, the interesting about Lashish is, uh, Lashish is about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, um, I love biblical archaeology because it confirms every single thing the Bible says. I got a stack. I've had to actually, I've had a, a stack of papers of biblical archaeology. I've had to divide up into sections. I have so many of them. Oh, we found this about King David. Oh, we found this about the Philistines. Oh, somebody was digging and they found, you know, part of the temple. It's awesome. So there's another, and a lot of these, uh, back in the day when Britain was, was really a, a very powerful nation, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, few people here from English descent. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, museums in England that have, there are a lot of English archaeologists that have these very things that prove that the Bible is true. We have them too, but they have a lot of them. So it says that there was one source that I read that um, in a British museum, I forget which one, it had the remains, there was a pit in Laishish or right outside the city. And it was kind of gruesome. They dug it up and they found a lot of, it was almost like a mass grave. And they found 1,500 casualties of Sennacherib's attack on Lashish. Um, and as a matter of fact, we go even further. I have a picture of it in my Bible. Um, 
you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. We have computers. Great, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I live long enough to see the, the switch from paper stuff to computers. I'm still trying to catch up. But back in the day, they would have stones, uh, the Rosetta Stone, which helped us to translate hieroglyphics. Uh, they have obelisks, which were tall. They either were made out of clay, stone, marble. And what they did was they hired a team of people like the administration uh, recorders, and every single battle, they would have pictographs. They would depict it in a picture. Then they would write about it in cuneiform or whatever language they were using. But I can't, it's, it's not really uh, exciting, uh, but the, the thought behind it is it exciting. And this thing is, these things are like eight feet tall, some of them are ten, and it's just writing, 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 and on all sides. So this Sennacherib's prison, I have a picture of it, is something that existed actually has all of um, the Assyrians' conquests. Now, I'll read just a small part of it. Sennacherib says in his writings, this is interesting, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem. Remember, siege warfare is you have a walled city, you have an invading army from the outside, everybody battens down the hatches, and they try to fight with them so they don't get, there's no breach in the walls. Um, It was brutal warfare. The Romans did it, everybody did it. Uh, The Assyrians did it. They were very patient. Uh, they gave people a chance to come out and surrender. If not, they said, well, when we finally get in, you're going to pay. So there's this, this siege against Jerusalem. So the, this leader of Assyria says, I made the king a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in the cage. And he ends it. And it says this, according to the archaeologists, while Sennacherib's siege against Jerusalem is a verified historical fact, nobody disputes it, it is interesting that Sennacherib's account does not mention how the siege ended. This leads to to suspicion, now this is all secular, among historians that the siege failed. The reason is that the Assyrians never mention their defeats in their official records, only their victories. Isn't that amazing? Completely backing up what the Bible says. It's the pride of man, right? The biblical account indicates that Sennacherib suffered a crushing defeat in his siege of Jerusalem because of divine intervention. We're going to get to that in the next chapter. Verse 17, it says, Then the king of Assyria, so there's this, the people on the outside, the army, the army on the inside, the gates are closed, the people on the wall with their stones and archers, and, and everybody's ready to throw down. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshekah. These were official titles from Lashish. So now they're moving from Lashish to Jerusalem with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they came and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So Hezekiah is sending his delegation. He's probably not coming out because there's probably some crackerjack, not with a, you know, a 308 rifle, a scoped rifle, but with some archers ready to take out the king. So he sends out his delegation to, to speak with these Assyrians. And then the Reb Shekah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having counsel and strength for war, but they are vain words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. 
so is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, check this out. Now, this guy's a wicked guy. The Lord, your God, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So four out of six is the second invasion into Judah by Assyria. You can see, um, you can see the Rabshakeh standing by the aqueduct. When you were besieged by another army, and you were holed up into your... If, unless you had a whole bunch of wells, if you didn't have a water source, all they had to do was wait it out, and you would die. All your people would die of thirst. So he was standing by the aqueduct, basically saying, we have control. We're going to we're not only get in there. If not, we'll wait it out, and we'll, you know, we'll mess with your water source. So it was pretty kind of scary for them. If I could put up a picture... Actually, yes, put up a picture. Now, this is interesting. <laughs> All this stuff is interesting. This is Hezekiah's water tunnel. <laughs> this is, is amazing. Tourists now go there, and you see that guy standing in there, and he had somebody take a picture of him. This is a tunnel that Hezekiah and his men dug underground, going from two sides to get water into the city underground so they wouldn't know in case of a prolonged uh, besiegement. It actually says that the long underground shaft known as Hezekiah's water tunnel or the Siloam tunnel was dug through solid rock under the city wall of Jerusalem by King Hezekiah of Judah in the 8th century. The tunnel linking the Gihon Spring outside of the city walls to the water reservoir known as the Pool of Siloam inside the city walls was dug to provide water to the city in case of a prolonged siege by Assyrian forces. Built about 700 B.C., the crooked shaft, actually with simple tools, that looks pretty straight to me. But the crooked shaft is 1,750 feet long, often running 60 feet below the surface of the earth. That had to take a long time. It was discovered in 1838, but little scientific exploration and excavation work was done on the channel until 1866. Not until 1910 was it cleared of debris left by the destruction of Jerusalem later on, 586 B.C., a walk through Hezekiah's tunnel is a popular activity for modern tourists while visiting Jerusalem. An inscription in Hebrew found in the tunnel near the Pool of Siloam describes the construction project. Two separate crews worked from opposite ends and eventually met in the middle of the shaft. Digging far below the earth's surface in bedrock, they labored for months in semi-darkness with crude hand tools under difficult breathing conditions. But their hard work was rewarded when the pool of Siloam began to fill with precious water that would spell the difference between life and death for Jerusalem if the Assyrians should attack the city. I love this stuff. I love the archaeology. I love proving that the Bible's right. Um, you know, this is, this is fantastic. You know what's cool about this is the prophet told the king, God's going to be with you. You know, try to repel them. Keep the gates closed. Don't give up. But Hezekiah trusted the Lord, and, and he couldn't have won without the Lord by destroying so many of the, uh, the opposing army as they were trying to get in. But also, Hezekiah 
did this project. You know, it's amazing, Christians. Sometimes, you know, God hasn't called us. I call this couch potato Christianity. Sometimes Christians sit around, and this is an aberration, and they sit around and they whine and they wait for God to like drop something through the ceiling. Hezekiah did, he, there's no way he could have beat them on his own. All he did was, though, is say, hey, we're going to need some water if this is a prolonged siege. His men dig, the water comes into the city, they're being besieged. God takes out the enemy army in the evening, and um, everybody's happy. But I, I always say this as Christians, we should. We should trust God with everything we do. We should give him first right of refusal, but we also shouldn't be lazy. Hezekiah wasn't lazy. Um, you might say, well, how did they do this? This guy, People must have died. They were probably so terrified of the Assyrians that this, you know, one guy says, I, I can't work anymore. My arm's tired. Somebody else will take his place. Um, they were going to get this thing dug. So a few things. The Rabshakeh, this uh, military official, how he tries to whittle down and demoralize the Israelites. Let's look at some of the things he says. Verse 21, he, he mentions Egypt and says, basically, you're going to trust Egypt. Egypt's pathetic. You lean on that rod, it's going to go through your hand. Egypt is a, a weak reed. And this is how they spoke figuratively back then. Um, it is possible, and we did this through Isaiah's study, that uh, there was some temptation under Hezekiah's part to at least dialogue with the Egyptians. Right? And Isaiah, remember Isaiah says to him, don't do it. I'm going to give you the victory. I'm go- it's going to be me. It's not going to be the Egyptians. So it's amazing how much the Assyrians studied their enemies. And we'll find out later they speak Hebrew. So the Assyrians were determined on dominating the wall- world. They even read the religious writings. They read the, they read the prophetic writings. And they used it against the Israelites. So these guys were serious business. Okay, um, So don't trust Egypt. Uh, the second thing we see is in verse 22 that Assyria tries to get the people to distrust Hezekiah. Think about this. Hezekiah, he says, you took down the altars. Um, why can't you worship God whatever you, wherever you want? Look at your king made you all come to Jerusalem to worship God. First of all, he's twisting the facts. God did not want the, all those places. He wanted the people to worship in Jerusalem in the temple. So again, he's, he's playing with their minds, okay? Uh, furthermore, God's not going to help you. He's angry at you people because of what your king did. Again, that's another lie. Distrust the leadership and also to get them to feel that God abandoned them. Don't even bother praying. Now, as believers today, sometimes thoughts come in our minds. Sometimes people try to mess with us, Right? Sometimes Satan tries to mess with us and puts these thoughts in our mind. Well, God doesn't care about you. Well, he's forgotten about you. You've been praying for this for so long. You know, just forget about it. And that's what the enemy tries to do. And sometimes he uses people. In this case, he uses, Satan used some very wicked people to try to twist the minds of the people and demoralize them, right? Uh, in, in addition, verses 23 through 24, Assyria tries to get the people to either turn on their king or, you know, remember now, there's a bunch of guys on the wall and they're listening to this dialogue. There's the warriors up there. And he's basically trying to get them to uh, either turn on the king or to become traitors. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in a minute. Um, he goes, I, if, if you guys come down, I, I mean, I'd give you 2,000 horses if you could find riders. Basically, your military is so pathetic, it doesn't even compare to ours. You know, if we, you gave you 2,000 horses, you couldn't have enough warriors to ride on those horses, right? Again, he's trying to wear them down. You can't win. 
Satan will try to discourage us, right, in our spiritual battles with discouragement, fear, demoralization, and finally despair. Right? With a believer, a believer can't be possessed. I, I would hope that no believers would not believe in God anymore. So the only thing he has in his toolbox is demoralization, is despair. It's, it's, it's psychological warfare. If you've ever read the book by, uh, I should have done a little bit more homework. I don't remember what dynasty was he, he was in, but he was an Asian military leader and his name was Sub Zhu. Has anybody ever heard of this guy? A few of you. If you ever read his books, he, he was a master at psychological warfare when it came to literal war. As a matter of fact, the North Vietnamese used it against the Americans to get them to finally leave Vietnam. And when the Americans sat down with the, with the generals from the, the Viet Cong and the North you know, Vietnamese, uh, the, the Americans were mad. They said, you wouldn't fight us in open ranks. This was an actual conversation. And they said, yeah, but we got you to leave, didn't we? And what they did was they used sub tactics. They used guerrilla warfare. They used their enemy to overestimate them and then underestimate them. They used tunnels. So this is kind of like it's, it's this kind of mind game that he's playing with the enemy army to try to get them. Because, listen, the Assyrians are going to lose soldiers if they go up against the wall. If they can get some people to defect or everybody to defect or kill the king, they win without a shot being fired. Think about it. The last one, verse 25, is the sickest out of all where he says, the leader says to them, and he's saying to God's people, God sent me here. You could just imagine his, his sarcasm, his arrogance dripping from him, his pride. He, he's basically saying, you guys don't even have a prayer. And furthermore, your God, Yahweh, he's on my side. Look, I took the northern kingdom. I took all the cities around you. I took Lachish. I'm coming for you. Your God is with me. He's not with you. He's upset with you. Satan will try to make us question our relationship and our standing with the Lord. He will. And sometimes he'll use people to do that. You know, we may sin, and, and Hezekiah sinned, and we may mess up, but, you know, the Lord died for our sins. He wants us to be, he, he wants us to walk in forgiveness. He wants us to walk in, in grace. And I know this is the Old Testament, but you can see these parallels. Satan doesn't, you know, Satan is a, is a general he, that he's thousands of years old. He's been accumulating information. Now, some may say, if you don't know the Scripture really well, or you're new to maybe the teaching, you may say, well, where's God? God's there. And God's more powerful than Satan. Satan's a mind controller. The more you pray, the more you read your word, the more you're in fellowship, and that's what church is for, to be around like-minded people. The stronger you are in your spiritual battle. Satan's best thing is to get people alone, like the lion. And, and I watch those nature shows, you know, the gazelle or the... The, the impala who strays the weak one and the female lion goes and kills it or the the buffalo the elephants a few of those those female lionesses boy i've seen them take it take it down but once they're together and they're they're you know in a, in a herd and they're tight the lions can't get any play you see what i'm saying satan is like the bible says he's like a, a lion roaring trying to destroy us but we have god last few verses verse 26 I know it's, it's, it's a weeknight, it's late, I'm trying to keep you awake. This stuff is intense though. This stuff is really intense. Because I, it's just, just me, it's my imagination. I'm picturing the scene and the army's outside and there's people on the wall and they're probably really scared. 
because no one's ever repelled. How did they, how did they take Lashish? I don't know. You think they're going to get in here? Ah, I certainly hope not. I hope Hezekiah is really talking to the Lord because we're in, we're in real trouble if they get in here. Right? Verse 26. That's my paraphrase. Uh, it says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, check this out, Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, <laughs> Nice try. Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. That was the plan. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city has not been given, has, shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, if that's the Lord saying that, or you thinking that. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, every one of you from his own vine, you eat from your own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Savarvaim and Hena and Eva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. He had told them beforehand before they went out. So five out of six is the response of Hezekiah's officials. Eliakim asks the Rabshakeh, can you please not speak in Hebrew? Because it's going to upset the people on the wall. And he's like, of course I'm going to speak in Hebrew. That's my point, to terrify them, right? And he basically, it, it inflames him to speak to them even more. Now he's not even speaking to the, to the court. He's speaking to the people on the wall and he's basically saying to them, you better defect before it's too late. And this is pretty graphic. If it was a nasty siege of a city, study siege warfare, there's no food, there's no water. He's saying you'll be eating your own feces and drinking your own urine. So I don't know what the words for they were back then, but he's basically trying to put terror in their hearts. Okay. By contrast... And, and I could imagine the guys on the wall, they're thirsty, they're tired, they're scared. And he's saying, you know, just come out. You can go to your fields, you can have your figs, your vines, you could drink from your own cisterns of water. We'll let you go. Just, just, just defect, right? Satan tries to get us to deny God so he can give us something supposedly better. What did he say to Adam and Eve? He doesn't want you to eat from that tree. Because you'll be just like them. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be a God. You'll be a God. Everything will be fine. And they, they succumb to pride. They succumb to curiosity. And thousands of years later, look at the news. This, this world is a mess. Because, you know, 
because God gave us free will and sometimes we make the wrong choices. And over time, they get compounded, right? Satan's always trying to say, come to my side. Saying to the, the couple that's having a troubled marriage, to the spouse, you know, your secretary really understands you. You know, your, your wife or your husband. Man, I've seen this over and over and over. It's like that song, It's a Slow Fade by Casting Crowns. And then one day you're, you're sitting in a pile of mess. And you're saying, how the heck did I get here? It's by listening to suggestions, by listening to your own crazy thoughts, by listening to things that go against what, what God says in his word. And all we, we do is we have trouble from there. You know, well, you, you know what? You, you want to make your first million. Yes, the, the slow way. Your boss isn't going to give you. Why don't you just do it this way? Why don't you cut some corners? Why don't you do some things illegally? You know, you just, you're getting older. You know, you got to put your kids through school. And this is what Satan does. Cut corners. You know, do it this way. The government will never find out. They, they're looking at the big fish. I've, I know the Bible so well, and I've studied Satan so much that I can talk like him. Seriously. Just like, right? I've been a cop for 25 years, retired last year. I know how the criminals think. You know what I'm saying? I know what they're thinking. I've been around them for so long. You just, you just start to understand them and their MO and how they do things. Right? This is the way it goes. The rep, don't worry, I'm coming back to goodness. It's just, it was just a, it's just a little aside, a little soliloquy there. I'm, I'm cool. Uh, Reb Shekha says, he basically says, your God can't save you. Look at all the other gods. What happened to them? <laughs> just what's going to happen to you. It's just a matter of time. Don't make it difficult. Right? Verse 36, but the people held their peace. They were probably terrified. But there was something in Hezekiah that they trusted. And they, they knew that he was him and the prophet Isaiah. They knew that they were, being, they were close to God. And they said, you know what? This is scary, but we're going to take our chances. Trust in the Lord. That's amazing that they all did that in unison. And there's sometimes, he says, Hezekiah said beforehand, just don't answer them. He already knew. You know, you ever deal with a situation where somebody's trying to egg you on? They're trying to get you to say something. It could be social media. They're just pressing your buttons, pressing your buttons, and then you say it. And maybe they deserved it. But you're a believer, and you shouldn't have said it. You know, sometimes we just have to learn to zip it. No matter what I say in this situation, it's going to reflect negatively. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. This is going to reflect negatively of I can just see the future. I like to talk, as you can tell. I could, bup, 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 I could do this all day long, right? Ask my wife. But there's sometimes, and it's tough, i got to shut it, shut the trap. Don't say anything. Because it's just going to be this, well, apparently a lot of you have experienced this, back and forth, back and forth, and then you find yourself, how did I get here? Oh, I wish I could take back time. Last verse, 37. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph. So the king's counselors come back into the palace to see the king, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Six out of six is that, that the council comes in, and they're, they're bummed. They're, listen, we're believers. We go through hard times. You know, Everything's not going to be perfect all the time. 
uh, tearing your clothes in the Hebrew custom was a sign of grief, anguish, mourning. They were probably worn out from the conversation. This guy was just so arrogant. He was so prideful, and his soldiers were probably displayed, and, and they had just taken all these other cities, and they're like, oh, man, I hate being here today. But the end is so magnificent that I hope that you come back for the next chapter. I don't want to put you to sleep. We're going to do chapter by chapter. But Hezekiah started off a young man. He was a king at 25 years old. It just was the progression, right? Who was your father? He dies or he gets sickly or whatever. It's your turn. Some, t- some took the throne as, as teenagers, young teenagers. They needed to be trained because they're the king. They can't make terrible juvenile mistakes. So he takes the throne at 25 as we'll find later, he, he has some pride. He's got some flaws. But when the Lord looks at the end of his life, he says, the Bible says, he's a good man. You know, folks, we're going to mess up as Christians, but we're covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Sometimes I can be harder on myself than I know God is with me. Sometimes he's already forgiven me something and I'm still kicking myself. No, no one's changed in 3,000 years. We're still people, you know. When the Lord looks at us, if we really have a heart for the Lord and we really want to please Him, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. We're going to ask for forgiveness. And you know what, why Jesus went to that cross? So that when God looks at every believer, He sees His Son. See, when the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took our filthiness. So when God saw Christ, He saw all the sins of the world. But we, when we believe in what He did for us, we took His character. So when He sees us, don't beat yourself up. Just like Hezekiah. Where do we get into some of His mess-ups? David messed up, right? The disciples messed up. And where are they? They're in glory, where we're going to be one day. God loves us. He doesn't seek to destroy us when we falter. You know what he does like Hezekiah? He desires to give us another chance. And Hezekiah did better the second time. So folks, when you leave this building, take with you that you, you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're covered under his blood. He loves you. He forgives you. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And when we mess up, we ask for forgiveness. And you know what? He shows us grace. And that's a good place to be. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.